All right, everybody, welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. Uh, this is a very special episode because we are on location, not in my kitchen, uh, and actually speaking to another human being. That's right, folks, it's not just me. I am joined by Ava Cool, the owner, founder of Epilip Brand, uh, a brand that I've been following since my early 20s, and I've had the uh, pleasure of actually visiting the storefront when it was still in New York, and now they are located here in sunny California. Ava, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. Hi. Appreciate you uh, coming out here to Redondo Beach. Absolutely. Come meet with me in person. I know you all can't see it, but we are in a gorgeous home inside one of the rooms where all of it happens. And uh, Ava has sold product to how many different people across countries do you think you've interacted with over the years? Mm, I think the last time I counted, we've done about, we've shipped about a little over 100,000 orders out. 100,000 orders. Yeah, hard to estimate how many things we sold in the store on top of that, but about 100,000 distinct online orders over the past 11 years. That is fascinating. And uh, for those that don't know, uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you got started doing all of this? And uh, we have a lot more to talk about, but I think it's really exciting to meet somebody that is really tuned in to what I believe that they should be doing on this planet. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, I started Epaulette uh, with my ex-wife in 2008. We, uh, we had some, uh, some seed and investment money from uh, a business that I was doing and also from my former mother-in-law. Um, we opened uh, our first storefront in Brooklyn. We were living in Carroll Gardens, which at the time was kind of like an up-and-coming, gentrifying neighborhood. Uh, and originally, the store was actually conceived as a uh, women's boutique. Um, so we opened in May of 2008. Uh, I was doing freelance photography. Um, Adele was working as a buying executive at Juicy Couture. <laughs> so we both <laughs> quit our respective hustles and opened up this store. Um, it was an interesting time to open because the summer of 2008 was right before the big financial recession. That's right. And actually, the effects of that were already starting to be felt on the West Coast. Um, so, you know, what will happen is in the fashion kind of calendar, you'll order your clothes about six or seven months before you receive them as a retailer. So the in, in this case, the retailers would have started ordering these clothes back in like uh, January of that year. Um, they were producing and getting ready to deliver them uh, in July, which would have been the fall collection. We opened in May, and because the financial effects are being felt on the West Coast, uh, a lot of stores were going out of business and canceling their orders. So there were all these vendors, and they were stuck with all this merchandise that they couldn't ship. So I was kind of <laughs> commercially minded even in the early days. And uh, the first couple of months, we were actually doing like weird pop-up events where I would talk to these women's vendors that we were buying for fall, um, fill the store with their product, and then sell it all on consignment. Hmm. And do a launch party. Customers come by, buy what they want, and then we would just give back whatever we didn't sell. And this was really, uh, this really worked for a couple months. Then we brought in our fall collection, and that did really well. And then Bear Stearns, the investment bank, went under, hmm. and you could not sell anybody anything. Right. Um, and that was a scary moment. Uh, forced me to think outside of the box, which is uh, one of the <laughs> one of the necessary things you're going to do if you're going to be an entrepreneur, probably in anything, but especially in our industry. And um, we saved the business. This is it's a little funny anecdote because everyone knows us for the kind of menswear things that we do, right. um, the Rivercino, the sneakers we've made, the Doyle jacket. But um, I'm in business now because of two really unlikely products. Uh, the first one was um, Shuriken refrigerator magnets <laughs> they were, ninja stars yeah ninja stars yes exactly yes yeah yeah yes ninja stars so they were um they were, they were cool they were these little plastic baubles 
Um, and imagine like the usual kind of ninja star, but with one side cut out and made completely flat. So if you hmm. put it, it was magnetized. If you put it against a refrigerator, it would look like you threw a ninja star at a refrigerator and it got oh, embedded in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I literally launched a website, epauletteshop.com, with just this product. Um, <laughs> I bought it. Uh, I was paying some stupid amount of money for them. Um, who, I mean, they probably cost like $2 to make from Asia, but I was getting them from this middleman for $10. I right. think I was selling them for 22 Yeah. Um, we got a write-up in Playboy magazine of all places. And it was it was huge. Yeah. Um, I probably sold like fifteen hundred orders of this stuff. Cow. Um I packed it all myself. Uh, I remember getting from USPS these little VHS sized boxes and then filling up the uh, <laughs> <laughs> filling up the, the mailbox outside. But it was it was really important. You know, it was totally out of the realm of the high-end women's clothing we were selling at the time, but um, but it kept the store alive. And it kept my morale going because otherwise I would have been running a hopeless shop where no one wanted to buy anything because yeah. the sky was falling. But we were selling this dumb, crazy gift. And um, the other thing, and that, and that was okay. I mean, financially it was right. fine, but it wasn't keeping the lights on. Um, but the other thing that really worked, uh, I carried a brand called Melissa, which is a, a Brazilian shoe company that makes everything out of PVC. So oh, wow. These plastic shoes, right? And they're pretty cheap and cheerful, like jelly shoes right. um, for women. Um, they had put out a uh, high heel, which they made with Vivian Westwood. Oh, wow. A legend. Called the Lady Dragon. So the shoe was interesting. It was pretty, it was sexy, it was fun. It had this big heart on the toe. Um, it was fairly high. Uh, and it retailed for $150. So it was like this perfect recession product. You know, it was like, that's expensive for a pair of shoes made out of rubber. But, you know, with the designer connection and the look, uh, you know, it was something that a lot of ladies felt comfortable spending, even in the midst of, like, complete financial disaster. <laughs> uh, but stores were not buying it. So um, we had a good relationship with the salesperson of Melissa, and I decided to buy all of the Lady Dragon Vivian Westwood heels that they had at their entire New Jersey distribution center. So we bought, like... We must have bought 1,500 pairs of shoes, something wow. like that. And um, it was amazing during these months when no one was doing any business and stores were going out of business left and right. Um, we were doing $2,000, $3,000 a day just in these shoes because oh, we were okay. the only people in the States that had it. Um, that gave us the seed money to like start doing our own uh, our own private label shirts in New York City and starting the men's collection, You know, updating the website. Uh, going out of style form, all that stuff <laughs> was directly related to the to the earnings we had from shuriken refrigerator magnets and um, plastic four-inch high heels. You know, that story perfectly encapsulates <laughs> just story, how yeah. unexpected even Vivian Westwood's rise to fame was, uh, being mm -hmm. uh, the stylist for, I believe it was the Sex Pistols. Yes, and yeah, it was because Malcolm her, McLaren's wife. Yeah, and he was yeah. the manager for them. For, uh, he was their manager, and uh, he, they both ran a store in London called Sex. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. I didn't know there was that other connection. And it was alleged that he was inspired by the New York Dolls. Oh, yeah. So he came to the East Village in like 1975, and they're considered the first quote-unquote punk band. Uh, and for those that don't know, uh, Ava's lived a very uh, eclectic life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Beyond, beyond uh, just being a buyer for some of the world's largest uh, retailers and brands, also uh, was, uh, were you the front singer for these hardcore bands? Yeah, I played in a few different hardcore and ska bands in my time. No one of any note. <laughs> Nothing that you're going to find in any kind of streaming service. Do you feel like any of the, the lessons you've learned or experiences you've had being in hardcore bands translates into either the work you do or just how you live your life? Uh, I guess it made me very comfortable with public speaking. 
Um, I was a vocalist. Uh, I can't play any instruments, so um, that, <laughs> that was my role. And, um, you know, the one thing that would happen, it happened in all the bands that I played in. We would always have a, a guitarist, um, but especially my, <laughs> my ska band in college. Um, you'd always have a guitarist who would break strings. And this is a tense moment for a band because it takes like, you know, like, I don't know, 10 minutes to restring and tune a guitar. And um, if you're the singer, like the job kind of falls on you to keep the crowd engaged while this, while this uh, crucial guitar repair is happening. So I definitely had stage fright early on days, but I learned to get quickly comfortable. So, um, yeah, I guess as much as I'm comfortable these days talking in public forums or being on a radio show, um, that helped. So... Throughout your other eclectic experiences, we were discussing a little bit earlier before starting the show that you were also a buyer yes. for various places. And you didn't start off doing exactly the thing that you wanted to do, but you learned a crucial experience and, and lesson from that. So mm -hmm. what were you doing at that time? Um, so, so, yeah, yeah I, I went, went to school, school uh, for, I was, I was in pre-medicine for a while and then changed to marketing, marketing and international business. business. And uh, I went straight out of school into a buying program at Lord & Taylor. Hmm. Um, I'd done some internships before that at Calvin Klein and Macy's. So pretty much all of my employment has been buying and selling products to people. Um, and I was always interested in menswear. So when I had my first proper job at Lord & Taylor as assistant buyer, um, I really wanted to be in either men's clothing or men's shoes. And uh, they uh, they took that under advisement. Then they assigned me to the frames and gifts section. Frames and gifts. So what counts as frames and gifts? Picture frames. Picture, literal picture frames. Literal <laughs> picture frames was a was a big business at the time. Um, and then gifts would be uh, you know like all kinds of uh, Yadro, Waterford, uh, crystals, figurines, uh, um, some, something that's kind of delicate or austere, luxurious little trinkets, those yeah. type of thing. Yeah. The single biggest product that we had was the uh, Lord and Taylor. New York City snow globe. Snow globe. Yeah, they were being made in massive, massive quantities, and the snow globe had a little miniature, you know, kind of New York skyline. Mm. Shake it up. It, you know, played. I think New York, New York. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Predictably <laughs> so. Um, yeah, that was a big seller. Uh, and I was. I remember getting this position and being really crestfallen about it. I was honestly really upset. Um, I was also young and super impatient, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, am I going to waste a whole year doing this? <laughs> I'll never get that year back. Um, but I had some good advice from my boss at the time and he told me, he's like, look, you know, being a good buyer, a lot of people make the mistake thinking that they can only buy stuff that they're interested in. But ultimately being a good buyer, being a good seller is, uh, is just, is the product right for the customer. Your personal, your personal tastes are totally immaterial because all you're really doing is just evaluating what customers want. You're looking at a constant stream of sales and inventory data each week and making good decisions based on that. Um, and it was good. It was great to learn. Um, you know, frames and gifts is a really high volume business. So, so much of being a buyer for a department store, at least back then, was looking at these hysterically enormous, like, analog reports that would come out. You know, we had, I don't even know what it was called, with that massive dot matrix printer, yeah. you know, that would, like, print out sheets. would be, like, 16 inches wide with the perforations <laughs> on the side, you know, yeah. it'd be, like, white on top and yellow on the bottom. That's right. Someone out there has a more official term than this. <laughs> This thing I'm describing, but yeah, I, you know, every Monday morning you'd print out these reports and then sit and look at, you know, 85 different locations, what stuff they sold, what stuff they are out of stock on. It's a lot of things to examine and, um, you start to learn and identify trends from this information. And, um, I'd say that that was intrinsic to even my career these days, because a lot of it is, uh, is just determining what people want and then trying to build up the right balance of the right balance of stock, you know? 
to uh, to satisfy demand without being overstocked. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, to add a little bit more texture as to how we even know each other is when I was in my early 20s, I had graduated from trying to dress like Nelly from the early 2000s. <laughs> Uh, so what I did was, <laughs> Wait, does that mean you wore a lot of like white tank tops and like enormous uh, so, like, so uh, like I was, Jesus I was too skinny chains? to be wearing the tank tops, but mm-hmm. I was purchasing a lot of uh, baggy clothing from PNB Nation, oh, yeah. uh, Mecca, Triple Five Soul, uh, uh, Diddy's brand at the time. Sean John was in full right. effect. Rockaware. Uh, I mean everything under the sun, and I bought fresh it all. Jive. Fresh Jive. Fresh Jive. I definitely had a few Fresh Jive yeah. hoodies. Oh, Aniche. Aniche. I had some of yeah. that too. So uh-huh. what you do is you wait until winter or fall during yeah. their big semi-annual sales, and you go to Macy's and you ask your friend's mom who works at Macy's to add her additional twenty-five percent. Uh-huh. And uh, you come to school looking like you uh, are wrapped in some kind of uh, sheet because you're so. Uh, small. I was about five two at the time, and uh, less than a hundred pounds. Right. Uh, I had a do rag that I bought from the f- from the flea market. Did you really wear a do rag? I did wear a do rag. Well, like, what was your preferred do rag color? Uh, I typically wore black, and then <laughs> okay. I uh, I was also that's the basic <laughs> safe color. So I didn't know what dance hall was at the time, but we had bootleg satellite TV, and so I was watching BET all the time, and so that I think that was a golden era. Of BET for me because it had 106 in Park. That's when you still had artists coming on and doing freestyle battles every mm-hmm. Friday. And I saw Sean Paul for the first time. I saw Nelly for the first time. And I became enamored with dance hall. Hmm. I didn't. I didn't connect the lines. That I was literally just wearing different variations of the flag of Jamaica. In my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, black do rag and a yellow and black, you know, uh, Mitchell and Ness cap. Wow, I definitely uh, want to get pictures of this. <laughs> I have it. It's in my yearbook. All right. uh, but I, I funded all of this through my first part-time job. So I was uh, sweeping floors, peeling potatoes, throwing out the trash, and uh, taking orders at In-N-Out Burger, you know, oh, a very yeah. popular burger chain here in California. It's been around since the 50s. Um, if you're a teenager and you need a part-time job, try to get you a job at In-N-Out. Uh, it'll, you may smell like cheeseburgers every day, but you're going to be just fine in terms of how much you'll make relative to your parents. I heard it pays better than all the other It's pretty places. great. It's wow. pretty great. It's not easy, but you definitely like learn patience. 30% more, 50% more than you I would say at least 25 or 30% wow, okay. more. Right. Easily. Right. You know, I thank I thank my mom so much. Uh, not to deviate too much from our conversation, but I got that job. I interviewed for that job literally the day that I confessed to some girl that I liked mm-hmm. that I had a huge crush on her. Knowing she was already dating some other guy. Oh, wow. Uh, it was like a really bad Nicholas Sparks novel. I storm out of the movie theater, jump into my mom's car, and then go interview for this job. That's funny. <laughs> wow. While my, while my eyes are still welling from my heartbreak for yeah. a romance that never happened. Yeah. Uh, but it's funny how life takes you those directions. But, you know, the reason why I found your brand is I was getting into raw denim at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, right on the tail end of high school. So I had graduated from the whole kind of Daniel Day-Lewis does Nelly and Sean Paul. And now I was trying to find some authoritative source to teach me things because I didn't know who to talk to about this. A buddy of mine from college sold me his, I think it was either um, Studio the Artisan or Samurai Jeans or mm-hmm. one of those Japanese denim brands, sold me a pair. He was so skinny. So I have the the fortune of having big hips and a belly, even though you, you could have seen my ribs when I was that young. And I didn't understand body proportions. I didn't take any measurements. Yeah. So I bought these pants sight unseen from him, and they didn't fit. So then I had to find a way to sell these very obscure jeans that nobody wanted mm-hmm. to buy just right. on eBay. 
And so that's how I stumbled on this thing called Style Forum, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And for those that don't know, Style Forum is literally a forum for style. Um, a lot of people who were enthusiastic about streetwear or more commonly menswear um, were on this space and everybody would talk about, you know, what makes a good dress shoe, how are things constructed, what makes a great button down shirt. And then over time, as I began to explore more professional careers while I was in college, I wanted to kind of step up my fashion game. I didn't want to wear that same lime green express dress shirt that I bought, that I wore to my junior prom, that I wore through my pyramid scheme, that I wore through all of these things in my high school jazz band. Um, And then I stumbled upon your brand where for the first time I found a brand that was not only enthusiastic about what they did, but they really took care of the customers. I mean, I if I go if I can actually go back to my account, I think there's probably at least a few hundred messages with you and me back and forth asking about yeah, we this and that. Yeah. And I, I bugged you to high heaven and I never got a rude or uh, degrading re- remark or response from you. And I'm so appreciative of that. But you didn't just do that for me. You did that for everybody on this thing. Um, and so that's why I became such a, uh, a fan of what you do. So I would love to learn what was it like for you in those early years, just interfacing with so many different people from across the country and the world, asking you these very specific things. The early years were interesting. Um, we did. Okay. So following the, following the high heel slash shuriken successes, yeah. um, I started realizing that you know, our kind of multi-brand store uh, concept was not going to be something that was going to be really big. Um, there was an opportunity to, to make a lot of money with that. And like some people did in the past couple of years, um, although those days might be coming to an end. Uh, but that wasn't going to be, that wasn't going to be us. I, I always liked doing my own production. And even when I bought uh, for a year and a half at Saks Fifth Avenue, one of my favorite things of the job was doing private label and creating, creating my own products with the different brands that we worked with there. Um, and doing exclusives. And you just can't do that if you're just like a weird little corner boutique that goes to a trade show and buys a bunch of crap that people are selling to everyone. So, um, you know, we started making our own dress shirts. And I had one one really good bit of training. So in between, in between Epaulette and working at uh, department stores, I did seven years at a company called Lomography Cameras. Um, I was their product manager. I lived in Vienna for a couple of years. And... Um, you know, the, the cameras actually speak reasonably well to the product that we sell now um, because they were primarily sold at gift stores and, you know, fashion boutiques. Uh, they're not really serious cameras. They're more of a more of a community tool and mm. a way to have fun. And anybody who bought a Lomo camera, you know, wasn't doing it because I guess I should say that, like, are you familiar with Lomo cameras at all? Or am I just Yes, I visited the store when I was in New York. I mean, okay. a beautiful store. And I know there's kind of a kind of a cult following yeah, yeah yeah and i always like used to say that so that was a valuable thing from community building um you know their main camera was called the lca i think back then it sold for like a 200 something like this and it wasn't some camera with amazing capabilities it was okay um it took cool photos but um the main thing was that when you bought it you got entry into this community and there was a website with you know like-minded people they would do events around the country and it was really cool it was really it just romanticized everybody into the brand. And for me, I've had a love of photography for a long time. Um, I do, I mean, I've always taken all my own photos for the site. So any picture you've ever seen on Epaulette, I've taken. Wow. Um, you know, I'm not the most amazing photographer. I just do stuff kind of like uniform these days. But um, Lomo inspired me to have this whole love of photography. Um, 
And even though you could have gotten a better camera for the money from Canon or Nikon or somebody like this, right. you know, like the idea of going to a meetup of Canon photographers is just absurd. And maybe that happens, <laughs> but you know, like Lomo had a community around it. And part of my job at Lomo as the like sales director and the um, product manager was to also manage like the way that Lomo was marketed on forums. So I got very used to forums and just being honest and transparent about stuff and engaging customers and being funny and dealing with complaints. I mean, Lomo cameras broke a lot and people would be incensed about it. And how do you, you know, how do you handle those customers? How do you make them, you know, feel better about the experience? So Style Forum was a real natural venue for me to come onto. I think like compared to a lot of people in my industry, I was probably better equipped to market on there. Um, the thing that, that was interesting was I learned the value of community involvement very early on. So we started on Styleform as a vendor, I think, let's say in like August of 2009. And uh, I came on, I paid for a thread, like $500 a month, and uh, no one cared at all. Hmm. I was posting up the stuff that we were selling, like, I don't know, I had like shirts from Cheap Monday, if anybody remembers them. Oh, yeah. Swedish. You know, right? yeah, yeah, and like Rogue, Rogue's Gallery. Um, so these kind of brands, which I don't even think exist anymore. Um, no one was interested. At the time, people were really passionate about Band of Outsiders. Um, they were not happy about the price because the retail on those things was like two fifty, and oh, everyone yeah, was scrambling they were around. Hot. Yeah, but you know they had this slim fit. Um, so I took a look at Band of Outsiders. Um, I would see customers coming in, wearing them, liking the style, but they they really like they didn't fit most guys very well. They were really like super high armholes, very thin sleeves. Very people, slim. yeah, people would have to size up. But if you were just like kind of a normal like semi-athletic build, it just didn't work. So I used one of those as a base, but ended up you know just like making it cut more. You know, I like to say if like you think about like the way that I do pattern design. It's usually cut like for that physique of like Daniel Craig in mm. James Bond movies. Right. So that's kind of like the the zero, <laughs> the zero fit if you imagine, um, because if you cut if you cut clothes for that guy, then it tends to fit people with a, a bunch of different variations of that physique pretty well. Right. First, just trying to cut it for a really skinny customer, and then it just doesn't work on anybody with any more weight, muscle, or fat. Um, so we put out these shirts, and they were made in New York City. So they ticked off a bunch of boxes. You know, I was using you using nice buttons. They were handmade in the states in New York. We had cool fabrics um, that worked a little bit better. But the thing that really did it was when I went to a fabric supplier and I got a couple shades of chambray and a couple shades of seersucker, and I actually did a voting round. I remember that. Yeah. I posted it up, and I wasn't even trying to solicit pre-orders. It was mostly just to like get some more visibility, and people were so happy to be involved in the process and right. just vote on stuff. And then suddenly, I was getting messages saying, "Hey, can I order these shirts?" And at the end of the day, like after a week, I I had like twenty shirts pre-ordered, and this was a huge number for me. You know, we were at the time like selling like one or two a week, so to just have twenty already paid for and pre-ordered and know that I was going to ship them and deliver them was really exciting. Um, you know, and taught me the value of really involving customers in the process so for those that don't know what a pattern is you know how would you characterize what a pattern is and and part of just the whole experience of from a garment from fabric to final product okay um so the general workflow uh let's see what have i been designing lately um i'm designing a, a parka okay i'm gonna put out a uh, put out this awesome sashiko parka awesome next month um so i start with i generally tend to start with real garments so I had a, a combination of this Japanese coat um, and two other coats that I found at vintage fairs at the uh, the Rose Bowl. 
um, two old military coats. And um, I go to a pattern maker. So we sit down, we take a look at these mixture of garments. I tell them I like this hood, I like this this shape here. Um, I generally try to keep consistency on my clothes. So when you look at all the different shirts and jackets, they tend to have the same proportions of, uh, of shoulder yoke to chest and to waist. So that way, you know, somebody who takes a 40 in a jacket can also be a large in a shirt and a 40 in another coat. And things can have different shades of, uh, what I like to say is that the garment shouldn't fit identically, but one guy should be able to more or less wear his same size in all of them. Right. And if right. he likes one thing, he should feel pretty confident that he's going to like the fit in another garment. So I have my kind of paradigms of how this works. Um, we sketch out the things that we like. Um, I don't do like any kind of like project runway thing where I'm like, you know, making fanciful, <laughs> fanciful drawings of some rakish guy and, you know, <laughs> standing in Paris. Um, you don't have like a long cigarette and you put on a... Like well, a I do have a long cigarette. cigarette. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's an important part of the process. There's a lot of long cigarettes. Like some nice, like, low, mellow house music playing and just, you know... You've really considered this. Yeah. You have a whole, whole scenario in your mind. Okay. Um, no, I sit down with my pattern maker and then he sketches out uh, the initial pattern. And when we say pattern, it's done on hard paper. So oh. it's kind of manila colored very thick paper and it looks like a bunch of puzzle pieces these are all the components of the garment that uh that is going to be used by the factory to sew stuff i take that to my factory um, and they cut a sample so they're going to stretch out fabric on a big cutting table lay these pieces down cut it all out with a very sharp knife um, they'll sew up the sample um, I get the sample back and let's say the sample's perfect. It never is. Yes. You always have like one or two revisions, but let's just say for the sake of this, it's perfect. Okay. Now I have like a size 40 in the parka that I really like. That'll be the base size. Um, I then take that to a marking and grading company. So, um, I go down the street. Um, this guy will take these hard pieces of paper and he runs them through a huge flatbed scanner, scans them, digitizes them into a CAD pattern. Um, and then from there, he's going to scale out each size. So generally on a jacket, um, from one size to the next, the chest gets two inches bigger. The yoke gets a half inch longer. Mm. The sleeve lengths get half inch longer. The body length gets a half inch longer. You have these like set grading parameters. So he'll grade it out and then he'll take this base size 40 parka and then make a 38, a 36, 42, 44, all these things. Right. Um, the last step is what's called a marker. So if you imagine you have all these puzzle pieces which have to, um, which have to be cut, um, you, want to, you want to use the fabric in the most economical way possible and eliminate waste. Right. So um, the marker takes all these pieces and tries to place them together. And some pieces might be rotated, some pieces might be off-kiltered, so that they all fit together as much as possible. And there's as little fabric in between each piece, so you get the most yield and you get the most garments for the cloth that you're buying. Because hmm. everything that's not used just gets thrown away. Um, so he creates the marker, and then this gets printed out on these enormous kind of like, uh, they look like folded up blueprints, um, all rolled up in paper. That goes to the cutting house, and they use that to actually cut your garments and uh, assemble them afterwards. Wow, it's so, a small village to make it all happen. It is, yeah, it is. And, and you know, it's like working in L.A., um, I take a big part in everything. So Generally on the East Coast, if you work with a factory, like when I work with uh, Southwick, who makes all our suits, um, I have custom shapes with them and custom designs that I've done on my pants, but I am totally excluded from the process. Like I just really sent them a pant and said, I like this, change this, that, and the other thing. And then like eight months later, I got a sample. Wow. <laughs> so I never saw a pattern being made or a marker or any of that stuff. 
Um, here in LA, everything is hands-on, um, which I enjoy, and I work with people at every single step of the process. But it gives me a lot more control over things. It also it also makes it a lot less expensive, because certainly if you're doing it, you know, you're working with a factory and they have their own pattern maker, they have their own marking and grading. Um, they're charging you for that stuff right. and they're marking up each step of that process. So. Working here and being hands-on and kind of a la carte um, enables me to put more money into the product for the retail price. Thank you for walking us through that. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm doing that selfishly to tell my 22, 23-year-old self, yeah. listen to this episode before you try to make your own cut and sew clothing from a fabric that we were trying to loom ourselves. <laughs> oh, wow. Sounds, sounds ambitious, though. So I met, so I met, a, I met some dude on Craigslist. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is always the start of a bad story. Okay. And so I meet him on Craigslist and then this thing. No, uh, so this this guy, uh, Wolf, actually, I don't know if he ever actually did do it, but he told us he did. Yeah. And he brought samples of what he did. So we uh, we pooled our money together. We're all working nine to five jobs. We bought a loom. I was living in uh, Fullerton, uh, Orange at a time. No, Fullerton at the time. And uh, we had this, you know, three three-floor apartment with like five or six guys living in it. And we had dreams of grandeur that we're going to start our own brand. Mm. And I thought with my very limited, you know, self-taught marketing experience right. and just being a fanatic fan of all these other brands that I was somehow going to also be my own auteur. Didn't quite happen, but uh, so we bought this loom. We thought mm. we were going to make the same quality of fabric that these looms in Japan and across the country have been doing for oh, hundreds if not thousands yeah, of years. Totally, yeah. uh, I, I was introduced to somebody that, designs for a living and they, they told me a few steps of what mm -hmm. they knew and then I was driving back and forth to LA and trying to find pattern makers couldn't afford any of them so I ended up just hiring somebody who was still in fashion school mm -hmm. and so when the samples came out uh, a sleeve was a little bit too big uh, pieces were not quite in the right I didn't know anything about washing yeah. so the fact even if I had successfully launched and sold these shirts I think all of them would have been uh, in disrepair because we didn't pre-wash any of the fabrics mm -hmm. Um, so it was a, a cautionary tale. Wow. Yeah, it's it's hard and it is crucially important to have good relationships and find the right people. Um, I'm a stickler for how the clothes are made, but I'll say that like my production chain in L.A. is the best production chain I've ever, ever had. My pattern maker is fantastic. I mean, he really only does menswear, um, which is great because he's just very familiar with proportions and how armholes work and you know, these like little specific technical things that you don't think about that much in, in on the overall garment. But part of the reason why people love epaulette jackets, epaulette shirts, they do just fit really well. I mean, you have to be the right size for it, obviously. Right. But, you know, they're very comfortable. They drape right. You know, a lot of that is just the, the technical expertise that we have between the pattern maker doing good patterns and me <laughs> just constantly busting chops and being very meticulous with how stuff comes out. Um, all right, well, the marker and grader, he's the first one I've ever worked with. But he's very good. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's fast, he's prompt, and, um, and he, uh, he's extremely responsive. And then my factory that does the actual cutting and sewing and finishing the garments does the best quality work I have seen in the state of California, period. I can attest to that owning many of your products myself. What, I, what I'd like to get into next is just the fandom and mm -hmm. just the enthusiasm that people have for what you and your team create. I mean, even before Instagram got big, people were posting selfies on an hourly, if not minute by minute basis on these threads that you had. So yeah. 
what what do you think is is it about this community of people and do you think times are changing where people just feel a little bit more comfortable just expressing you know who they are and what they like more publicly through fashion so, so wait what are you you're asking like so you know what do you think is mm -hmm. is it about you know the people's uh, their your consumers and your customers you know enthusiasm for what they do you know why do you think I mean, lots of people buy lots of clothes, they buy lots of things, but not everybody is so proud to explicitly just say, I'm so excited that this thing gotcha. came in and yeah. I'm modeling. You told me that there's a school teacher that is, you know, I remember on the forum every day that he got a new piece from you. He'd find a new, interesting, fascinating, fabulous way to style it. That is just yeah. so cool to see. Yeah, we've had a lot of guys like that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, people have always had a really phenomenal personal connection with the brand. Um they like they like us as a team. Um, I think they respect the craftsmanship behind it, and um, we've always been very community focused. Um, you know, trying to make a, make the products about the customers who wear them, trying to be responsive to what they want, and that's that's just the key to being a good marketer. Um, I mean, I do. I guess I would tell people that I'm a clothing designer, but really, at the end of the day, I'm I'm more of a uh, I'm just kind of more of a clothing maker. You know, um, a lot of the stuff that we do is is in direct response to customer desires and customer feedback. Um, I've never made like a like a collection and kind of dictated to people. This is my vision for yeah. fall 2019. You know, I call this onyx on the mountain, you know? <laughs> something like this. And people do, you know, and then not to take away from that. That's a real skill. It's just not one that I have. I'm, I'm never actually organized enough to like get stuff together. Like the idea of me designing an entire season up front and having a bunch of samples and doing some massive photo shoot is just absurd. I would never in a million years be organized enough to pull that off. Um, I'm way too distracted and I like to have like 20 projects on at once. So, um, I don't know. Customers always see that things are always moving, uh, that we strive for excellence in the things that we make. But I also like I keep stuff realistic. Like I, I don't just make things that are crazy expensive for the sake of making expensive things. Um, you know, we saw that a lot with like the exotic sneakers that I make. Like you can go to Saks Fifth Avenue and you can find a, a pair of sneakers for eight hundred dollars. Yes, you can. Or just that price for no freaking reason. Um, I made $800 sneakers, but they were made of shell cordovan, um, or I had $600 sneakers, which were made of stingray skin. So um, this was expensive. The retail was high, but this was because the materials were exotic. Um, they're really expensive leathers. And this was like this crazy baller nutso product that you just could not find anywhere else. If anyone else has ever made stingray German army trainers, I have not seen it. That's right. So um, it's cool. I think also like from our brand perspective, like we offer an exciting mix where um, and it's something that I have to refine in the future and communicate a little bit better. But, you know, we have a mixture of a collection, which is stock garments, the Doyle jacket, the Rivachinos, um, the chain stitch shirts, these kind of things that we primarily now make in Los Angeles that people can buy and try out and all the stuff and they can build a wardrobe out of it. Um, but I do a pretty constant stream of pre-orders including some crazy stuff like the Doyle jacket all in a printed fabric with a bunch of cherries on it. Yeah. You know, um, like said, uh, Stingray sneakers, which were definitely among the most bonkers things we've ever done. So these are fun projects that people can participate in and pre-order and get something that, you know, I couldn't otherwise afford to make in stock. Um, and they get something really special in the wardrobe. Um, and then we have an entire like bespoke section too, and you can do custom shirts with us through individualized custom suits with Southwick. And this is just like, it's a much bigger, um, it's much, much bigger selection of avenues to uh, to contact 
our brand. And I think our customers have a lot of faith that we and I am doing the due diligence to judge the fabrics ahead of time and make sure that everything is really worth their hard-earned money and their attention. Absolutely. I would say that I have never once uh, thought that anything that I was either looking into or purchasing from you ever felt like something that was seemed like a, a cash grab. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a certain sense of authenticity and integrity with the way that you carry yourself and your brand and everything that you do. And I think that's a perfect segue into the next segment of this conversation where you've had this fantastic, amazing life in the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And now you're here on the West Coast, and yeah. so much of your life has changed over that journey. So what does life look like for you now, and how is it different from the life that you were living in New York? <laughs> yeah, things, things are pretty different, different these yeah. days. I know that's a loaded um, question, but yeah. please uh, share with us what do you feel comfortable with. It's cool. I mean, yeah, so New York was great. Um, it got extremely stressful towards the end. Uh, you know, like, like both personal and business-wise. Yeah. Um, so towards the end of my time, I moved to California in 2016, the summer of 2016. So I've been here for a little over three years now. Um, before I moved, things were like out of control. Um, I had two storefronts in New York and both of them were failing, you know, and it was crazy too, because like, you know, generally when you, when you get a store, you're either signing a five or a 10 year lease. And in the past, like, You'd sign a 10-year lease for a store, and it's not really a big deal. And you kind of expect it's either going to grow a little bit or it's going to retract a little bit. But things started moving just so quickly in New York City. Like I had this storefront in Brooklyn, which I opened up in 2008. And 2009 was the financial. 2008 to 2009 was the financial crisis. No one wants to buy anything. Then like 2010 uh, was kind of the start of the hashtag menswear movement. Hmm. And suddenly I was selling out of everything. I was like the only person who had, uh, I was really one of the first boutiques in the country to have Alden shoes. Right. Because um, they were mostly represented in shoe stores at that point. I had them before J. Crew did. And it was like this crazy thing where, you know, suddenly I had a store that a year before was <laughs> was struggling to sell to sell a pair of, you know, plastic high heels, as yeah. we discussed, because almost all of those were sold online, um, to, like, I couldn't keep $700 shell cordovan boots in stock, and I would get 24 pairs in, and they'd be selling out in the store over a weekend, and a, a line of guys waiting to buy it. So the store went from being not successful, being hysterically successful, and then I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Let me open up another storefront, and open up the one in Manhattan. Um, but seriously, all this lasted, like, five years. You know, by the time it was, like, 2015, you already started seeing like a, a market downturn in uh, in customers and and just general traffic in the stores. And uh, I had to close my close my Brooklyn store in 2016 and the Manhattan store in 2017. And life in New York was just like more stressful than I could handle. Um, I lived in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn, um, which was where we had our first store. And it's a pretty neighborhood. Uh, it's very desirable because the public schools are great there. But yeah, it was never planned for the kind of density that ended up happening. I remember having a, a sales manager, a guy who worked for me named Dylan, and um, you know, we would like try to touch base once a month and talk about his career, and I wanted to go do that outside somewhere, just not do it in the store. And right. I realized that like, even though this neighborhood had six coffee houses, not one of them would ever have a table free. So the idea that we could go out and go to a coffee house and sit down and have a discussion was just absurd could never happen it was always full always full all yeah. the time the subway always full all the time constantly breaking down um i just got like kind of like racked with health problems i had this crazy acid reflux uh 
I couldn't sleep right. Um, yeah, I had a baby. Um, as my daughter was only like two years old then, so it was just way too stressful. Uh, we moved to California for a bunch of reasons, and um, definitely just having a, an entirely different lifestyle was was the main one. Um, so it was a really big adaptation. Uh, moving out here, we moved initially to Manhattan Beach and opened up our showroom in Hermosa. Uh, I tried for a little bit to try to manage the business in New York. I thought we might try to keep open the Manhattan store, but it was just impossible. Um, just being, you know, both me and my ex-wife ran the business and then we had a kid. So like the idea that one of us was going to be this like bi-coastal bon vivant, you know, getting on a plane <laughs> and like, you know, going to New York and staying there and running the store and just, it wasn't going to happen. Like it was just, we were stretched way too thin for either of us to spend any significant time. Um, on either side. So I guess the main thing that I've been doing is been just really trying to adapt to the new retail landscape, um, playing to our strengths and um, trying to just bring the business into, uh, sounds so cliched, but bring it into the next 10 years. Um, I've also had a lot of personal changes. I am transgender, so I'm <laughs> transitioning to female. Anyone listening to this would have known me as Mike before. Um, and I'm still the same person. I don't, uh, yeah, I'm not like hung up on, hung up on that. And I don't want to make it a big narrative of, sure. of the business because ultimately, like, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I'm wearing or how I look. Um, I'm still just going to be designing menswear and doing the same exact work that I've been doing for the past ten years because it's what I'm good at, and it's what I love. So, yeah, that's been that. Um, yeah, and a lot of it is just adapting to the new retail landscape. Um, we're seeing a lot of really good retailers go out of business. I know for a lot of us, me included, um, seeing the, uh, the death of union made, mm. it's pretty like that is very much a canary in a coal mine moment. Right. Because union made was a great store and Todd, uh, the owner of union made or co-owner uh, is a great buyer, you know, very perceptive about customers, really strong sense of style. But I think that concept and having that, you know, that kind of retail footprint and all that overhead may or may not be valid. Um, the thing that you're seeing now, uh, people who are really, really successful are generally direct-to-consumer brands, which are laser-focused on one easily understood, unique selling point. Um, you know, they're telling a simple story, which can be easily communicated through Instagram and Facebook ads. That's so right. You just understand exactly what the hell's going on, you know. Um, so I'm trying to just kind of take the usual enormous, slightly schizo <laughs> scope of work that I do and focus it a little bit more into the things that we're doing really well that customers really value from us. And then working on telling more of the narrative about how our clothes can be, can be worn and integrated, um, into someone's wardrobe. I think like it took a while for me to realize I have a, a tagline um, for the site or for the collection called Modern Essentials of Uncompromising Quality. I do a terrible job of defining what this means right now because it's just kind of out there. You know, like I was struggling with what the name was going to or what the tagline was going to be. But I think it's an important distinction from a lot of places that um, Epaulette, uh, the Epaulette collection is not a lifestyle brand. You're not, right. I mean, I believe me, if anyone out there wants to wear head to toe Epaulette, I'm with you on that. <laughs> I'd appreciate it, but that shouldn't be the focus. Um, I think that actually with our clothes, it's more valuable and something that I need to get better at showing is that we're actually just making really, really good pieces and really great items 
um, that work well with the things which are already in your wardrobe. So if you buy a Doyle jacket in Sashiko, yeah, I do sell jeans, but you probably own your own jeans. You're probably like, you're probably someone like High here who's uh, who's got very expensive and specific taste in jeans that he likes to tell us about with his name dropping <laughs> earlier. So, uh, you know, you might rock that with the uh, with your Japanese jeans from Selfedge or from Blue and Green. Um, and I'm with you on that. So, uh, so we're working to just kind of show pieces that have great stories on their own and uh, illustrate how customers can wear it together. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all of that perspective because for me, I've been all of my interest in fashion and style is a reaction to being bullied as a kid my whole life. Yeah, wearing clothing from my uncle and my cousins from the '80s and '90s when it wasn't retro to be wearing those things, and I didn't have sensibility to know how to wear it like T-Boz from TLC or Naughty by Nature or anything like that. Wait, why, why is T-Boz one of your examples? What was she doing? <laughs> TLC just, I mean, when they wear the overalls with the boots yeah. or yeah. the silk pajamas and all that, I mean, that just epitomized just cool and confidence for me. <laughs> I love it. Super yeah, okay. dope. And, right. you know, for me, I didn't, my way of kind of cloaking and being a chameleon in mm. all of these different environments where I stood out because I was shy right. or sometimes we moved into neighborhoods where I was, really the only Asian kid, Yeah, um, I learned if you just dress like them, you blend in, right? And you can kind mm. of keep your head down and then kind of not stick out so much that people will continue to pick on you explicitly. Got it. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And, you know, it's cliche to say I'm thankful for those experiences. So I set the record straight. I'm not thankful for those experiences. This <laughs> fucking sucks. Yeah. But I am gr grateful for having loving, caring people around me that help me endure and make it through those experiences. And I do not thank any of those bullies for a second. Mm -hmm. right. I hope those people are, are more balanced and not doing those things anymore. But my whole desire to express myself, and then for a while I became very uh, fixated on brands. So mm -hmm. I thought if it's obscure, it's yeah. made in small quantities, and it's got uh, a storyline to it. I must own it relative to something else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not why I was enamored with your brand. What I loved about and still love about your brand is that I have learned so much about just the fundamentals that I can actually share with other people. Yeah. You know, I had a friend who had a speech contest. He does Toastmasters. Are you familiar with that? Mm -mm. So it's a, it's a public speaking organization. I mean, he's at the top of his game. Fantastic. Awesome dude. Met him through uh, this kind of entrepreneur group that I used to, to uh, work with. And he appreciates the way I dress and the way I carry myself. So we went to a, a store and picked out a suit for him. And then he went to this alterations lady, which I absolutely adore. Fantastic. She works in a strip mall in the middle of this area that yeah. you otherwise wouldn't find. She doesn't need to market. The word of mouth is so strong. The line's always out the door. Hmm. Um, and he felt like a million bucks. I mean, same thing with my brother when he, he's working for this awesome company. He's globetrotting around the world now. And, you know, we just found some random suit at a Banana Republic outlet, took it to the tailor. He feels like James Bond. Mm. So my eyes are wide open now and so appreciative of not labeling and feeling constrained to things. You know, something I love to do with my girlfriend when we travel is going to thrift stores. Mm -hmm. And yeah, thrift stores uh, are great. there's a thrift store that used to be right by this Korean barbecue joint that we would go to because it's the cheapest Korean barbecue joint in the area. Mm -hmm. And I found these awesome shirts for $2 a piece. Out of all the stuff that I've spent probably way too much money on, I get more compliments mm. wearing those shirts that are actually women's blouses. I found out because of the button placement and just the way the collars are set than many other things that I have. Huh. 
And that has really just opened up my eyes and my mind to, you know, appreciating when I do invest that time, energy, emotion, and money into something I care about and believe in. But now being much more uh, open-minded about how you can throw a look together. And it's not about trying to mimic what someone else is doing, but kind of like the way I see style and fashion and the means of production, I see it a lot like music, Mm -hmm. right? Some of the greatest music people don't realize are samples. Right. So some of the greatest pieces of fashion that we associate with these, you know, couture brands or high fashion brands or uh, just smaller uh, independent brands that we love are often inspired by something that came before it. But they put their own twist on it. So when I see someone who is genuinely enthralled and enthusiastic about fabrics, about a certain cut, about the reason why why don't we see more men's trousers that actually mid the high waist with interesting fixtures? Like why do we have to go to Japan or Italy mm-hmm. to find that now? Right. Um, that's, that's what gets me excited. And I can translate that through my day job as a marketer. And what's been really fun is channeling all of the things that I love as a consumer and customer through this lens of marketing. And it makes me appreciate and be even more discerning as a consumer now mm. um, for the things that I connect myself with. Very cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we've had a really productive conversation today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share from your perspective, the life you've lived, the things that you're you're into now and the this journey that you're on? I'm just I'm just really grateful for everything now. Like definitely um it's been a long time. I've been now self employed for eleven years. Um and it's been a it's been a successful business. Um I really like every day when I log on to all of my social accounts uh, you know, our Instagram, our, um, our Reddit page style forum, you know, I just can't even believe that all of these customers have been, have been my friends for, for this long. And, um, I've had so many people along on this journey. Um, it's very, very rewarding, especially to work locally now, because more so than in the past, I'm, I'm just, you know, so hands-on with the factory that I really see the impact that we make. And I know that, um, a bunch of people, at our factory have jobs. A lot of people have been hired because we do so much production here in Los Angeles. And um, it's wonderful to to make that kind of impact and see it. And um, yeah, I'm just very, very grateful to be where I'm at. I'm looking forward to doing the best work of my career. I've had, <laughs> had a few like personal kind of monkeys on my back for the past two years, which have proven to be a really big distraction. But um, I'm past that. It's very exciting, and um, I'm definitely more passionate about things than uh, I've been in a long time. So it feels feels like kind of reinventing stuff from uh, from square one. But um, but luckily, I do already have this uh, this wonderful community of, uh, of very supportive customers and friends, very supportive friend customers that um, that we can work for. Um, we're still going to continue making everything here, um, USA production. I know it was like a, it was a bit of a trend, um, for a while. And a lot of people give all sorts of, you know, all sorts of lip service to it. Right. Um, I probably don't stress it enough. Actually, it's kind of like, it says it on my items, but it's not a, a central marketing tactic. Um, only because I feel like clothes have to be. Clothes have to be honestly really good. You know, just the fact that it's made here is not enough of a selling point. It wouldn't be enough of a selling point for me if the stuff was not cut well or made, because it's totally possible to have a horribly made garment that's still made in the States. It's true. <laughs> yes. and there's, you know, there's plenty of plenty of great garments made outside of the States. So yeah. it's not like, you know, like making something here makes it intrinsically better. Um, 
but I think there is like a nice virtue to uh, to local production, and I want to show the customers more of that over the next year. Um, you know, help them to meet the people who are actually producing their garments. We're doing a lot more personalized work and trying to get more into like videos and narratives because a lot of my customers, I know they have the financial means to shop wherever they want. Right. You know, if they buy a Southwick suit from me, it's not like you know my Southwick suits aren't aren't particularly inexpensive. So if you can afford that, you can buy a made-to-order suit from probably, I don't know, three dozen different places easily. Um, but they choose to buy it from us because they know that we are taking care of the fabrics that we show. We're telling a good narrative with that. They know that the Southwick factory is making stuff unionized in Massachusetts and the qualities there. They know that we put our own intellectual work into the shapes that we use, the pants and the Nuovo jacket. These are all our own designs. So um, I want to uh, honor their loyalty and their commitment by just kind of continuing to push stuff forward and delight people with new things. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me into your home and your creative space. And I am absolutely looking forward to seeing what this next wave of creative output is going to be for you. And I've been a, a fan from day one, and I'm going to continue to be a fan. So thank you for allowing us to be in this space today. Anytime. Thank you for thank you for all your support. Thank you for coming out here. All right. And so now we're at the shameless plug moment. So if you'd like to plug your website, I would absolutely like to provide that opportunity for you. So where can people find your brand and learn more about what you're all about? Sure. So the name is Epaulette. It's spelled E-P-A-U-L-E-T. Um, you can just put that into Google and we'll show up as the first result. But the actual URL is epaulettebrand.com. Um, and you can also reach us on Instagram under the handle Epaulette. And um, I probably should have a Facebook page. <laughs> I, sort of, I sort of do, but it definitely needs some help. So don't look at that right now, but maybe check back in like November of 2019. <laughs> It'll be more organized. But um, uh, generally, like I, especially on social, I personally answer everything. So if you're on Instagram and you follow Epaulette and you send a message to the Epaulette uh, account, you're guaranteed to reach me personally because I am the only person managing it. So um Feel free to hit me up. And then if anybody is in the L.A. area, um, we do have an office. Um, it's listed on the site. Uh, it's essentially where High is. My, my house is also my showroom. Um, and we receive customers here a couple times a week. Uh, we do it by appointment. Uh, we're very close to LAX, only about like 10 minutes away. And we have free parking and two different coffee makers here. So if anybody wants drip coffee or espresso, that's included. I would uh, I would echo that sentiment. <laughs> I did not have to fight anybody for parking today. Yeah. Uh, I don't feel like my window or mirror is going to be clipped by the time I go back to my car. <laughs> uh, there's some gorgeous wallpaper and uh, amazing uh, framed images throughout this space. Uh, it's just a really warm, uh, creative, and inviting place. Yeah. So. It's a fun place to visit. We have we have all of our inventory here, so anything you see on the site that you're interested in just trying on or checking out, we have. But then also we do fully custom shirts and suits, so we can measure you and get all your fittings. I know a lot of people, myself included, uh, will feel under pressure doing a custom appointment. Um, I promise that will not happen. No one here gets pressured to buy anything, and a lot of people, myself included, when you're ordering custom garments, you like to get some options, then go home, and you know you might want to show your partner. So um, anyone who wants to come by here, we will measure you up and send you home. Don't feel any pressure like you got to buy anything on the spot. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to this week's episode. And once again, thank you to Ava for being a guest on our show today. Thank you. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time.